This message was recorded at North 2013, an event organised by Christ Central, part of New Frontiers. You can find out more about Christ Central by visiting our website, ChristCentralChurches.org. Okay. Can you all hear me now? Is that better? Good. Okay, marvellous. Well, welcome everyone. Thanks for coming along this afternoon. Uh, I was uh, asked to speak on building a life of worship and uh, I, um, just to give you a, a tiny bit of background, Sarah and I and the kids moved out to Vancouver a couple of years ago to plant a church there. Uh, before that we were involved in uh, planting a church in London. I've been involved in leading worship for many years. Uh, love it. Love leading worship. Uh, we had, uh, I, I was... Uh, just thinking as I was preparing, we had a rather funny situation back in Switzerland a number of years ago. I was out there with Dave Fellingham and uh, we were doing a conference and we had this, uh, this guy, um, it was, I was leading worship for the first time in French and I don't speak French. So uh, it was, we, we were working out with a, with a bunch of French singers and working songs that we could kind of flow between, that, that I could kind of kick off in English and they could take up in French, but the drummer never arrived. Uh, and, and so about five minutes before the meeting was about to start, this, this guy rushes in, hops on the drums, does this kind of roll down, uh, down the toms, and, and, then, uh, uh, and, and, and then kind of off we go. And uh, uh, Dave Felly and I, Dave was playing trumpet, I was leading worship, and uh, Dave and I were kind of watching each other because this drummer was changing beat like halfway through a song kind of totally, and, uh, and, and so, so we'd be playing and, and you'd suddenly have this, like, two bars of kick drum, and then it'd be, and then you're into this kind of funky, it's like, what happened? So anyhow, we, we've had some fun doing that, but the challenge when it comes, I find, to talking about worship, is that worship is a big subject these days. Which church has the best Worship experience. I hate that particular term. I think it's a, such an unhelpful term. Uh, who provides, uh, who has the best, which is the best worship leader in the church? Uh, things like this. And I think our identity can end up being formed in terms of worship leaders. I, I, I know at different points in my own journey, I've had to, to, to wrestle through the, this challenge of I, I'm a son of God. That's where my identity is. And one of the things that I do is I lead, I, I lead the church in worship. And so, as we come to this question of worship, uh, how many of you here are involved in leading worship? Just to get a sense of... Okay, so there's a few of us. Uh, so, most of you hopefully have come with a sense of you're just passionate about worshipping God and wanting to, to grow and develop in that, which is great. Because what I'm going to look at today is building a life or, or a sense of the ongoing engagement with God and growing in worship that way, I think we're going to have some competition here. So uh, if you can't hear me at any point, just particularly you guys at the back, just shout. I'll move backwards slightly. So I'm, so I'm, you definitely will have to pull me out of those, out of the monitors. Just keep me in the front of the house. That'll, that'll help. Okay, so... What I'd really like to do is just talk... Uh, I'd like to take us uh, on a... Um, <laughs> I've gone. Uh, 
Uh, I'd like to just take us on a, uh, a little journey through uh, what I call a tale of three women. And uh, uh, just want to look at three characters in the Bible uh, that I think help us to form something of a, uh, an understanding of the worshipping life. Uh, and uh, so, just as I was preparing, I was thinking, how, how, how can we freshly come to this question of how we interact with God? And uh, again, just looking at the this, this subject of worship, it, it's, it's like prayer, I think. You talk about prayer and heads often go down. Now, worship's a bit different to that. Prayer, people immediately begin to feel a bit condemned about their prayer life and stuff like that. And, uh, and part of the reason for that, I think, is that we end up focusing not on the relationship with God, but on the prayer. And so, we're talking about prayer. And, and, and in one sense, if, we could, if I could use the analogy, worship or prayer is like the windscreen in your car. When you're driving, you don't look at the windscreen. You look through the windscreen at the road. And we can get hung up about worship. We can get hung up about styles of worship. We can get hung up about prayer. Rather than engaging, what, what's this all about? Well, prayer is my, it's my conversation with my father. It's my engagement. Often on, uh, on Alpha, when we're talking about prayer, I, I will say to people, you know, when you come to prayer for the first time, you might... Uh, have experience in a church before where you read prayers out of a book and, and it might be an old King, King James. Uh, now, I don't wake up in the morning and uh, look at my wife and say, How art thou, thou fairest maiden? Uh, and uh, my children don't come to me and say, Father, if it be thine will, can I do mine homework at this point? Uh, they don't do that, sadly. And... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, so the, you know, prayer is a natural thing. Conversation is a natural thing. It just comes out of everyday life. And worship is like that. And so, I want to start, in one sense, in a slightly funny place to start. I want to start with the story of the woman caught in adultery. And the story of the woman caught in adultery, I'm sure most of you are familiar with these three stories that I want to touch on today. It's a wonderful story of judgment that was not executed. This dear woman uh, finds herself caught in, the Pharisees say, the act of adultery. Of course, what's interesting is that no man is brought. And, uh, and we're told in, by John that this whole thing was a trap for Jesus. Uh, and so, in one sense, they use this poor woman as a trap for him. And so, they bring her to him and they say... Uh, teacher, she's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses says we should stone her for that. What do you say? And it's a trap. And uh, Jesus bends down and he writes in the dirt for a little bit. And then at the end of that, he stands up and he says, let any of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he bends down, kind of ignores them all, draws on the ground again. And one by one they leave. And eventually he stands up and he says to her, where have your accusers gone? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, sir. And he says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so we get this beautiful picture of the compassion of Jesus. We get this beautiful picture of 
Jesus defending this woman, actually, in, in, a, in, in a place of incredible hostility. They're hostile toward him. They're hostile toward her. And uh, Jesus stands. Uh, you, you know, he, he, he doesn't posture. He doesn't do... just draws in the ground, but he defends her. And he saves her from their judgment. And this is the foundation of worship. We don't actually get to hear what happens after that. We just know that she goes at that point. But the foundation of our worship is as people who have been released from judgment. We're those who have received mercy. Mercy has triumphed over judgment for us. And so the, the, the basis, the first thing that we come to God in is a people who deserved judgment and got mercy. We, we come as those who are set free. We come as those released from the burden that we should have borne. And so I think when we come to worship, we come to starting with what Christ has done for us. And, uh, and, and hopefully, just even as we're talking about this, your heart should be rising. I think we've heard it so, so well from Scott this weekend, that this sense of big love leading to big worship how God has uh, reached out to us and through the cross made it possible for us to know total and utter freedom in Him. And so we come not to a lifestyle first or not to, uh, to anything other than a free life because of what He's done. We come to this incredible sense, I am free. And so... When we come to worship God, one of the things that I encourage uh, people to, uh, we, so for example, on, in, in our uh, prayer meetings as a church, I will often say to people, we, we're going to start by thinking about what Christ has done for us. We're going to start with thanksgiving. We're going to start by praying back to Him gratitude for the wonderful mercy that we've received. And we start in that place. We don't start, for example, with confession. We don't start with ourselves. We don't start, oh, I'm so bad, I got this wrong, I got that. No, I don't start there. I start with, you are so magnificent. Look at what you've done in my life. Look at how you've, you, the perfect one, gave yourself for us. So imperfect. And so we come to God, not out of even our longing for Him. We don't start there. We start with, look at what you've done. I, uh, we, we, don't, we also don't start with our problems. <laughs> Classic challenge, I think, in, in prayer is that we start with our problems and we end up digging ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into our problems rather than actually coming to God. One of the things that I love about David, uh, you, you think of David as he goes out to face Goliath and, uh, and there's this guy who's absolutely mammothly large. You know, the, the spear that he's got is the size of a guy's thigh. I mean, just, you think, an unbelievable guy. And David walks out, runs out with five stones and Goliath challenges him and he says, you come at me uh, like a dog. And, and, and uh, he said, I'll, I'll kill you now. And David doesn't look at the size of this guy. He doesn't look at the Schwarzenegger-like muscle. He doesn't, he's, he's not impressed. He doesn't look at the stature. He doesn't look at the size of the spear. He doesn't look at any of those things 
and think, oh my word, what have I done? He looks at the mountains and the God who shaped them and he says, today, you who have defied that God are going down and I'm going to cut off your head and I'm going to feed you to the birds. And you see, so often we come to God on the basis of us or we come to him on the basis of our problems or or even our sin. And as we do that, we don't lift our gaze to who he is and to what he's doing and to what he's about and to what he's done for us. And we don't find ourselves in that sense lifted above those things. So one of the things that I encourage uh, our church, uh, our, our worship leaders, for example, say, hey guys, when we come to worship, start with objective truth about what God has done for us. We, I talk with them about a little process I, uh, uh, in terms of our, our flow of worship. I say, uh, it's helpful when you're leading us in worship to think of these four words. And uh, declara- the, the four words are declaration, celebration, intimacy and commission. And uh, declaration, by, by that what I mean is uh, the declaring of objective truth. You've done this in my life. You've done this for me. You went to the cross. You took my sin away. You, songs that no matter how I'm feeling, I can sing them because they're truth. Even if I'm feeling down in the dumps, even if I'm feeling like I, I, I want to give up, no matter how I'm feeling, I can still sing, You went to the grave for me. And as I begin to sing those things, it's, uh, I, 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 feel my, my, I find my heart beginning to respond to them. I find my heart beginning to own it. Wow! And that leads us naturally into celebration. Where I, I think of declaration as, as objective truth. I, I'm, I'm taking things and I'm, I'm speaking them out. I'm saying them. But celebration in my mind involves the heart becoming engaged with that. And I don't just, I'm not just singing objective truth, I'm now beginning to celebrate that truth. Wow, you've done this for me! I think we, we've seen Scott so uh, demonstrating celebration. I, think, I thought in his preach this morning there was a moment where he kind of went like this. It was like, yes, you're celebrating these things that God has done for us. And so, celebration, uh, I encourage them to, to, to go to intimacy from that point. And I think actually this is, a, this is often a weakness of our worship. Is that because we're Western, we're a bit cerebral, we're not necessarily so keen to get... Uh, I mean, obviously you can go touchy-feely, you can be extreme, you can get into to stuff, but actually there's a responsiveness to God. There's an re- emotional responsiveness that is entirely appropriate. There's a, uh, in, in, in any relationship, there's an emotional responsiveness that, that needs to be there for that relationship to flourish. And in our worship, it's the same. Uh, there needs to be a point of, uh, I just in, I'm just engaging with you. You're just marvellous. You're wonderful. Thank you. And, and it's, it's like my, I quieten down and I just engage with you. I'm, I, I, maybe I'm moving beyond just declaring things. And my focus is more responding to you in terms of what you've done for me. And, and, and that, I think, naturally then leads out to commission, which is that our focus ultimately goes outwards from there. So, I really want our worship times as a church to be rooted 
uh, and grounded in a celebration of God's love for us as evidenced by his work on the cross. Sometimes Christians, I, I find, sometimes I'll have a conversation with someone in the church where it's almost like people are questioning God's love for them because of the situation they find themselves in at, the mo- at that moment. And again, I think there's a, just a need to draw focus to the cross again and say, listen, you may be going through difficulty, but you need to come back to the centre of all of this, which is that God so loved you that he gave his son for you. And that's the measure that we start with. Now, even if you're not feeling the love of God, and I think it's important that we do experience, I think Paul talks quite a lot about the experiencing of God, but even if you're not experiencing something at this point, focus in that place. Focus in what God has done for you. Begin to thank him. Begin to engage with him. Can you imagine what this dear woman must have felt as she walked away from that moment? Can you imagine? For her, it was a, she was about to get stoned, wasn't she? She was, a, she, was, she was inches away from death. My life has been given back to me. But not only has my life been given back to me, my sin, uh, the, whole, the whole reason I'm in this situation, it's been taken away. It's been removed from me. It's just a phenomenal thing. And so we start with gratitude. We start with engaging God in terms of who He is. I, uh, a number of years ago, uh, when I, we were living in South Africa, uh, we had an English guy over in, in the church and he, uh, he made this comment to me one day. He said, I, I love mountains and I'm really sad that I'm not going to get to see the Drakensberg Mountains. And uh, I, I love the Drakensberg, uh, one of my favourite places on earth. And I said to him, well, if you're not doing anything on Saturday morning, I'd be delighted to take you up. And so that afternoon, uh, that, the Saturday morning, we drove up really early and uh, we hiked up the side of a mountain called the Sphinx. And there's a particular point as you come round the side of the Sphinx uh, and particularly early in the morning uh, when the light is in the right direction uh, that you come around this corner and you suddenly come into uh, this view of a, a mountain called Cathedral Peak and it just towers over you. It's incredibly impressive. I was walking behind him and uh, as he turned the corner, he, he, he stopped suddenly, so suddenly that I almost walked into him. And he stood there in silence for a few moments. Uh, and, uh, and then he just, with tears running down his face, he began to sing, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hands have made. And it was, a, I felt like I was intruding on a holy moment. And there I touched the heart of a worshipper. Someone who actually was, the, the, the mountain spoke to him of the creator of the mountain. He just, he, he, the gratitude welled out of him. He just, he, he, it was like an explosion within him. I see this thing and it just draws me to the glory of this God who has made it. And so, that leads us to the second woman. And the second woman is that Jesus is travelling 
uh, and he's travelling through Samaria. And of course, if you know the history, you'll know that Samaritans and Jews had enmity between them. They didn't get on. And uh, Jesus uh, is at the, the well at the heat of the day and this woman comes out and uh, it's probable that she was someone who was a bit of an outcast in her community, that she was even coming to the well in the heat of the day. But uh, Jesus says to her, I'd like some, some water and she, she's surprised that a Jew would ask her for water. And, uh, and, and, and Jesus kind of jests with her and he sort of says, uh, she says to him, you know, well, if, uh, you, you know, you're a Jew and you ask a Samaritan for, woman, for, for water. And, and he says to her, if you knew who was asking, you'd ask me for water and I'd give you living water. She doesn't get it. She says, sir, the well's deep and you've got no bucket. <laughs> uh, she doesn't get what he's talking about. And, and Jesus uh, t- changes tack at this point and he says to her, go call your husband. He obviously knows something about her. The Spirit has told him something. And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right, you have five hus- you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not your husband. She's like, whoa. And, uh, and she says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. Oh, great, yeah, yeah, you've, you've nailed it. And, and then either the, the, one of two things, she's either so embarrassed that she changes the subject or she's so amazed at meeting a pro- prophet that she, said, that she asks him this question. She says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so she basically asks him an incredibly controversial question. The, the controversy that really is at the heart of enmity between the two peoples, the two racial groups. And Jesus' answer to her is surprising. He says, Believe me, A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. And this is really important. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming... And has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So two things I want to just draw out of this passage. Firstly, Jesus elevates the importance of relationship over everything else. She says to him, you know, you say this mountain, we say that mountain. Or you say Jerusalem, we say this mountain. These are our traditions. That's your tradition, this is our tradition. Which tradition is right? Jesus says, it's not about tradition. It's not about places. It's not in that sense about buildings. It's about knowledge. It's about relationship. It's about connection. It's about knowing. As a child, I was fascinated by Douglas Bader. I don't know how many of you know of Douglas Bader. He was a, uh, a World War II fighter ace, uh, Englishman, uh, who just before the, um, on the, the onset of the Second World War uh, was involved in a low-level aerobatics uh, flight where his wing clipped the ground 
the aircraft dove into the ground and he ended up with the engine on his legs. And so they amputated his legs and uh, uh, day after day he would watch aeroplanes going up and watch the, the fighters going up in the Battle of Britain and he would write to the Admiralty and he made himself a total nuisance uh, uh, saying, I want to be able to fly. And eventually, I think just out of uh, sheer get this guy off our back, uh, they said, okay, you can fly. Well, he became one of the most famous wing commanders uh, in, the, uh, in the war before getting shot down. Now, I was totally fascinated by Douglas Bader's life. I, I read every book that I possibly could. I, uh, I, 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 I watched the film. I, I just in, was fascinated by this guy's dogged uh, determination to be part of things, to, to fly, to, to be a, a great pilot. He died in the 80s and I never met him. I could tell you a lot about Douglas Bader, but I never met him. I never had a relationship with him. And this is the point that Jesus is making. It's not about what you know. It's not about the traditions. It's not about those things. It's about your relationship. And so the question we must ask is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you engage with him? Do you enjoy him? Do you, is that relationship growing? And I don't ask that in that sense, sometimes we can, we can hear these questions almost and, and, and we immediately think, well, I don't know him as well as I should. I don't, I don't mean the question like that. Then do you know him? And hopefully, in our response, there's a, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I know you. Yeah, I want to know you more. I want to engage with you more. I, I want you to be the centre of my being, to, to be the centre of everything that I know. And there's this sense where God, I, I mean, it's just phenomenal when you think about it. God did not say, okay, I'll give you salvation apart from me. He said, I will give you me and that will be your salvation. I mean, it's breathtaking that the God of the universe wants relationship with me. I just, I've so loved hearing Scott talk over these last couple of days because it, it just pours out of him this reality of a relationship I have with this Jesus and it's so awesome and I know him. And I think this is the heart that worship comes from in us. It's knowing him. It's being in that sense, besotted with him, captivated by him, recognizing this is how you love me. And Scott made the comment about how a freedom from, a freedom to sin, I love the way he said it, a freedom to sin gives us the power to walk out of sin, to, to, to leave that. I thought that was such a fantastic comment. The love of God, the unconditional love of God provokes this amazing reaction in us that says, I want to know you. I want to love you more. I want to engage with you more than I've ever engaged with you before. Knowing God know, means knowing him through difficulty. Jesus said you will have trouble in your life. If you don't have trouble in your life at the moment, be grateful and let me prophesy to you, you will have trouble. Okay? The reality. 
and we test our relationship with Jesus, we prove him in trouble. We prove him in suffering. And we, our, our relationship with him goes, it's like a well that gets dug to a deeper depth in suffering, in challenge, in difficulty. If you avoid hardship, you'll never prove him faithful. The reality, of, it's, it's fascinating, again, what Scott was saying about Hebrews 12, is engage with it. Don't shy away from it. Press through it. And actually what happens in us is as we press through hardship, as we stay faithful, as we own Him in the middle of it, what happens is the well goes deeper. The engage- we find we're proving Him in the midst of that difficulty. Consider these two contexts where Jesus engages with this woman. These two women. Firstly, a woman caught in adultery and about to be stoned. Secondly, a woman despised from a despised people group who's been married five times, now living with a guy who's not her husband, a totally immoral lifestyle. Where is Jesus teaching us about worship? Where does he choose to teach us about the kind of worshippers that the Father wants? It's in the nitty-gritty of real life. It's not in the sheen of the temple. It's not in the glory of great bands. It's in the dust and the difficulty and the relational discord of life. And this, he finds a perfect context for teaching us about worship. Fascinating. The other day, a guy in our church asked this question. He said, I'm struggling to have meaningful time with God. I've got young children and a job that leaves me exhausted at the end of the day. And that's, that job is just about making ends meet at this point. How do I draw near to God? I imagine that there are lots of us in the nitty-gritty of life asking this question. How do I draw near to God? A mum with a young baby not getting enough sleep. I remember when we first uh, had uh, our second child, uh, he just never, he, he, he would wake up three, four times a night for the first four years of his life. And I remember going through elders meetings where I would zone out and I'd suddenly wake up like ten minutes in and think, what have I agreed to? <laughs> and it was just, it was a factor of life. Sitting down to pray was just, oh, like pushing through a mist, pushing through a fog somehow. We go through these seasons. You see, we learn truly about worship in the nitty-gritty of life. Not just in the great moments where the church seems to surge forward and encounter Jesus. We learn about it in a difficult workplace. When we press into God and we say, Lord, I want to be faithful to you even though this feels really difficult. We, we learn it in, 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 a, in a place where our family is dysfunctional and, and difficult and we say, no God, I want to be faithful to you in the midst of this. We, we, we learn it in all kinds of environments that, that would seem to press us down but where we say, rather than looking at the giant in front of me, I'm looking at you and I'm drawing from you and I'm allowing my relationship with you to breathe and to give me energy and strength for all that you have for me. 
And then the second thing is Jesus offers her living water. So cool. Now, if you think about it, there's another time in, in the Gospels where Jesus offers living water. Do you remember in Jerusalem, on the last great day of the feast, when the crowd would have been absolutely hushed, watching the high priest carrying the water up to the temple, about to pour it down the steps. And Jesus suddenly breaks the silence and he shouts in a loud voice, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus has deposited his Holy Spirit in us. The Christian life is defined by the Spirit. I'm going to sneeze. I'm not going to sneeze. He's deposited the life of God in us. You have the life of God in you. That's breathtaking. I mean, look at you. Look at us, come on. We have the life of God in us. That was God's purpose all the way through, was to have for himself a people who didn't have laws written on stone tablets, but to have people through the Spirit who their hearts were totally transformed, in love with him, who didn't need external laws because they engaged with him and loved him so much they would follow him. Oh, and by the way, they found themselves fulfilling the law because they loved him so much. You have the Spirit and worship is by nature a spiritual activity. You can't worship Jesus. You can't even declare that he's Lord without the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to worship, uh, when you're on your own, pray it. And as you start with worshipping, I don't know about you, but often in the morning when I, come to, when I come to pray, I don't feel particularly spiritual. I don't normally start, in fact, I almost never start with a sense of revelation of something. I normally start cold. I don't sit down because I'll fall asleep. I stand up, I pace the room. <laughs> My wife sometimes d- despairs of me. It's like... Can you just stand still for a moment? We, lo- we love to pray together in the morning. It's been our habit for the last few years. But I pace. And when I come, I, I come n- not n- full of the glory of God as, my, as I've awoken from my sleep and thought, oh, God's so amazing. I bounce out of bed and down to pray. I, I realize some of you are more spiritual than me in this way, but that's not my experience. My experience is that I start cold. And normally that means that I start just by thanking God for what He's done for me and I pray in the Spirit. 
And I love the way in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I, I, what shall we do then? I will pray in, 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 in my language and I'll pray in the Spirit. And I'll sing in my language and I'll sing in the Spirit. And I find that that has become very much the pattern of my praying, very much the pattern of my worshipping. I will pray and I'll pray out of my understanding and then I'll find that I kind of run out and I lapse into, this, into tongues. And I'll just, I'll just keep praying. And then as I'm praying in, in tongues, something happens and I, I find there's a, a kind of like other stuff that comes and I'm, I find I'm pouring out my heart to God and it just comes out of this dynamic reality of loving God. It, it's interesting when we come to worship Him with singing. Paul says... I will sing in my language in that sense, but I'll also sing in the Spirit. Uh, I have found, for me, singing in the Spirit is a massive deal. It just helps me. helps me to engage with God in that way. I just sing, often in the mornings, I'll just sing in the Spirit. Sometimes for an extended time. I find it just helps me engage with God. And then I discover in 1 Corinthians 14... The Paul says, he who prays in a tongue edifies himself. So I find I have a verse. <laughs> when I engage with the Spirit in this way, it edifies me. Oh, that's my experience. It's true. Jesus has put living water, his Spirit, into us to bubble out through us. Now, sometimes we might say, my life with God, my everyday walk with God is not an experience of the bubbling out. I want to say to you, I think that we can grow into a place where actually there is a lot more bubbling out. Because what we're doing is investing in the life of the Spirit with us in terms of how we pray and how we come to worship God. Just by singing, just by speaking. You know, it's not about being sophisticated. I've been fascinated listening to my daughter. She's 10 years old. Uh, She's just recently started making up songs to God very simple, quite repetitive. But she'll just, she'll just take something, she'll, she'll pick up something that either we've been talking about or she's learnt in, in, in kids' church or, or that she, that in some of our family prayer times or Bible reading that she's picked up and she'll just sing about it. I think, oh God, keep her growing in this. Kind of don't want to meddle with it. <laughs> don't want to give her any direction. I think just God's spirit is at work birthing something. Come on. Keep going in it. It's not about being sophisticated. You know, when, when in, in, in the Sunday meetings, I find so often uh, we come to the end of a song and everything falls quiet. We must be careful that we don't think that worship is about songs. Worship is about engagement. And so, the corporate song might finish, but I just want to keep pressing in. I don't want to get distracted at that point. I want to just keep going. And singing in the Spirit can be really helpful in that. Thirdly, the woman who washed Jesus' feet. And I'm going to finish with this. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to dinner. And if you can imagine someone who's obviously pretty wealthy, nice house, Jesus goes in, goes in to have dinner and in the midst of this, a woman who we're told was a sinner 
Very possibly that's a typical Jewish understatement. Uh, could well be that she was a prostitute. She was known as a sinner in the town. And she comes in, she finds Jesus, she walks into this guy's house. Now in our culture, we probably wouldn't appreciate that. In their culture, they didn't appreciate it either. She walks in, she comes to Jesus, she's crying, she wets his feet with her tears, she wipes his feet with her hair, then she takes out this incredibly expensive perfume and she pours it all over him, over, over his feet. Well, <laughs> Simon the Pharisee thinks in his heart, this guy's a phony. This guy's a fake. If he was a prophet, he'd know who was touching him. Jesus, of course, is far more prophetic than Simon realises. Because Jesus knows what he's thinking. And so Jesus says to him, two people owed money to a moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. The other, 50. One ten times as much as the other. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of those two will love him more? And Simon said, I suppose the one who's paid the bigger debt or had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus says, you're right. Then he turns to the woman and he says, do you see this woman? He says, I came into your house. You didn't give me water for my feet. It was the custom. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Pretty awkward, huh? <laughs> you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. As her great love has shown. Again, the setting of this demonstration of worship is grittiness of life, prejudice, possibly a prostitute. Simon judges her, but Jesus commends her. And he honours what she's done, even though, if you think about it, it's a tremendous social faux pas. I mean, how awkward. Can you imagine this woman walking in and starting to kiss your feet? And pouring, I mean, can you, can you imagine? I mean, she, she's put Jesus in a pretty awkward position. If it was me, maybe I'd be going like, how can I get out myself out of this situation? But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus defends her. Jesus honours her. In fact, he's so pleased with her that he says, wherever the gospel is taught, what she's done will be spoken of. What is it that pleases him so much? What is it that he delights in? Well, he delights in her devotion to him. He delights in the fact that she is so expressive of her worship. You know, friends, we must be careful when we justify how we worship based on our personality. I sometimes hear people making this kind of comment. Oh, I don't like to do that because I'm this kind. I'm, I'm an introvert or I'm, I'm like this. 
You know, the truth is, we don't get told what kind of personality she was. But what we do get told was that she was so impacted by how Jesus had forgiven her that she was extravagant in her expression of worship. My desire in our church is to see an extravagant church. Not because we're all uh, so extrovert personalities, but because we understand what Jesus has done for us. Because we understand how forgiven we are. Because we're so clear on what the Son of God has done for us and how much God loves us that we are genuinely children running into the throne room. My children don't say to me, Daddy, I would pester you for some soccer shoes, but I'm an introvert. (laughs) Personality becomes less important when the issue is significant. Has my heart been so touched by Jesus that my desire is to be extravagant and overflowing towards him in my worship? And you know, sometimes that's about making a decision. Sometimes that's about saying, I will go outside my comfort zone. I remember once I was doing some teaching with our worship team on honesty in worship and talking about how we don't, we don't put our feelings down but we engage and, and we press through. And the following day, one of the girls in the team just never pitched and uh, afterwards I said to her, hey, you were on, on the team, what, what happened? She said, well, I didn't feel like it. <laughs> I said, well, talking about honesty, uh, thanks for your honesty, glad you, glad you felt you could be honest with me about that, but that's not the issue. The issue isn't saying, I didn't feel like it, so I didn't come. The thing is saying, yeah, I acknowledge, I don't feel like this. But then this is where David is so helpful to us, when he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Forget not his benefits. And so he says, I I engage with God, not just because I feel like it. Sometimes I don't feel like it, but I say, you're worthy anyway. And so I will go through, I will press in because of what you've done. True worship always elicits action from us. And what's fascinating about what this girl does is that she doesn't just cry tears, she doesn't just use her hair, but she takes something that is extremely valuable, this perfume, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet. And worship, so often we can think of as, it's all about our singing. It's all about just our encountering with God. You know, the truth is, worship is expressed in action just love where we've gone this weekend so far. We started with big faith, we went to big action. It's exactly the same. Worship leads me to act. I go because I worship. We left this country because of worship, because we love him. And this is where worship should leave us. David Livingston, the renowned missionary from Africa, was addressing a meeting in Edinburgh towards the end of his life. And the host introduced him as a man who'd sacrificed greatly for the gospel, going through suffering and sickness and betrayal with absolute abandon to reaching souls for Jesus. 
David Livingston took the platform and he said this. I won't try to emulate his Scottish accent. I might in Canada, but I wouldn't here. He says, People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. He says, It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. That is the heart of a worshipper. I wonder whether we could just stand together and worship. What I'd love us just to do is to welcome God's presence, to sing a song of response. Let's sing, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. A song that's really familiar to us. And just let's take a moment, quieten our spirits. Now, as we're singing, it may be that you don't want to sing, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. You may just want to sing in the Spirit. Please go for it. Just engage with God. It's not about us doing the same thing. It's about us connecting with our Saviour, our living God. Amen. Now, that's just so easy, isn't it? All we did was we took a simple song. We gave ourselves an extended time of singing in the Spirit. And we pressed into God. We listened to Him. It's just so simple. It's just so relational. It's so easy. And it's something we can do every day. Personally, individually, in our small groups, and in the church. Thanks so much for coming. Great to have you here today.